Chapter 22 of The Life and Adventures of Peter Wilkins, Volume 2, by Robert Paltick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 22 This race, notwithstanding all that the Ragans could say to keep up their credit and to prevent the people's perceiving what fools they had made of them, had so good and sudden an effect on the people's prejudices that upon issuing the first proclamation there was no occasion for the second, for at least 25,000 men appeared voluntarily at the rendezvous of the old slaves whose masters, though they were declared free, had used diverse devices to oppress them and render even their freedom a sort of slavery, besides women and children, so that we had now only to pick and choose those who would be likeliest to be of service to the new colony. Nazgig and I differed now about the choice of persons. He, as a soldier, was for taking mostly single young men, and I for taking whole families, though some were either too old or too young for war. And upon farther consideration he agreed with me, for I told him young men would leave a father, mother, or mistress behind them, which would either cause a hankering after home, and consequently the bad example of desertion, or else create an uneasy spirit, and perhaps a general distaste to the settlement. So we chose those whole families where they offered, which had the most young men in them first, then others in like order. After that, man by man, asking them severally if any woman they liked would go with them, and if so, we took her, till we had about thirteen thousand fighting men, besides old men, women, and children, and then, marching by the palace, the king ordered ten days' stores for every mouth, and with this we took our flight. But as I was always fearful of a concourse in the air, Nazgig led them, and I brought up the rear. Besides the above number of people, I believe we could not have had less than 10,000 volunteers to the Black Mountain, some to take leave of their friends and others out of curiosity to see our flight. I took three pieces of cannon with me and proper stores. Our first stage, after a short halt on the Black Mountain, was to the governor's palace, where Gadsey received us with great respect. I told him my errand, which he approved. For, says he, countryman, it is now as much my interest to keep my old masters out as ever it was to serve them when in, and you have taken the only method in the world to do it effectually. I consulted him where I should fix my colony, and, by his advice, fixed it on this side of the wood, with some scattering habitations behind the wood, as watch-houses, to give notice of an enemy having the wood for shelter before they could reach the town, and, at the worst, the town for a retreat. I found by Gadsey that the ships from the little lands were soon expected, for that he said the Zaps knew nothing yet of the change of government, nor could till the ships returned. He asked me, as there was now a good lading, whether I thought fit to let them have it upon proper terms. I told him I would not hinder their having the metals or endeavor to stop their trade in the least, but should be glad to treat with them about it myself. 
I gave the forgemen descriptions for making shovels, spades, pickaxes, hammers, and abundance of other iron implements I should want in the building the new town, all which we got ready and carried with us. We then took flight and alighted on the spot of our intended city, and having viewed the ground some miles each way, we drew the outlines and set a great number of hands to cutting down trees, digging holes, and making trenches for the foundations. In short, we were all hands at it, and the women fetched the provisions, but I was obliged to show them every single step they were to take towards the new erections, and I must say it was with great pleasure I did it, they seldom wanting to be told twice, having as quick an apprehension of what they heard or saw as any people I had ever met with. The whole city, according to our plan, was to consist of several long, straight streets, parallel to each other, with gardens backwards each way, and traverse passages at proper distances to cross each street from one to the other, quite through the whole city. While this work was in hand, I took a progress to view the other country Malik had told me of. We had not taken a very long flight before we saw at a distance several persons of that country traveling to Mount Alco for metals. I had a great mind to have some talk with them about their kingdom, and ordered my bearers to go to them. They told me they durst not, for one of them would kill ten men. I did not choose to force them to it for fear of some mischief, but observing which way they came, and that they came in several small bodies of six or eight together, and that there was a light wood and some bushes between me and them, I ordered my bearers to sink beneath the trees out of their sight, and to ground me just at the foot of the wood, for I resolved to know something more of them before we parted. I lay Purdue till they arrived within sixty paces of me, then asking Malik if he knew their language, and he telling me he did, having often conversed with them at the mines, I bid him greet them, and tell them I was a friend, and be sure to stand by me. There were seven of them, and many more, at different distances. I showed myself, and Malik spoke to them, when two or three of the hindermost ran quite away. One stood and looked very surly, but the rest, who had stood with him, turning to run, I bid Malik tell him if he did not call them back, I would kill them. He that stood then called to them, but there, mending their pace upon it, I let fly and shot one in the shoulder, who, dropping, I was afraid I had killed him. I then went up to the other, who had not stirred even at the report of the gun, seeming quite terrified. I took him by the hand and kissed it, which made him recover himself a little, and he took mine and kissed it. I bid Malik tell him I was a great traveler and only wanted to talk with him, but seeing the man I had shot stir, I went to him and told him I was sorry I had hurt him, which I should not have attempted had he not shown a mistrust of me by running away, for I could not bear that. This, I said, to keep the other with me. I saw I had hurt his shoulder, but being at a great distance, the ball had not entered the blade bone, but stopping there had fallen out. So, tying my handkerchief over it, I told him I hoped it would soon be well. 
I inquired into their country, its name, the intent of their journey this way, their trades, the fruits, birds, and beasts of the country. The man I had shot, I found, was in pain, which gave me no little concern, so I chiefly applied myself to the other, who told me the name of the country was Norbon, a large kingdom, and very populous, he said, in some parts of it, and was governed by Anaweski, an old and good king. He has only one daughter, says he, named Stygi, so that I am afraid when he dies it will go to a good-for-nothing nephew of his, a desperate, debauched man who will probably ruin us and destroy that kingdom which has been in the Anaweski family these fifteen hundred years. Won't his daughter have the kingdom, says I, after his death, or her children? Children, says he, no, that's the pity. All would be well if she had but children, and the state continue fifteen hundred years longer in the same good family. How is it possible for anyone to know that, says I? You may know how long it has, but how long it will last is mere guesswork. No, says he, this very time and the present circumstances of our kingdom were foretold at the birth of the first king we ever had, who was of the present royal family. How so, says I. Why, says he, before we had any king, we had a very good old man who lived retired in a cave by the sea, and to him everybody under their difficulties repaired for advice. This old man, happening to be very ill, everybody was under great affliction for fear they should lose him, when flocking to his assistance, he told them they need not fear his death till the birth of a king who should reign fifteen hundred years. At hearing this, all persons then present apprehended that his disorder had turned his brain, but he persisted in it and recovered. After a few years, a great number of persons being about him, he told them he must now depart, for that their king was born, and pointed to a suckling child a poor woman had then in her arms. It caused a great wonder in his audience at the thoughts of that poor child ever becoming a king, but he told them it was so decreed, and farther, that as he was to die the next day, if they would gather all together, he would let them know what was to come in future times. When they were met, the woman and child being amongst them, he told them that child was their king, and that his loins should produce them a race of kings for fifteen hundred years, during which time they should be happily governed, but then a female inhabitant of the skies should claim the dominion, and, together with the kingdom, be utterly destroyed, unless a messenger from above, with a crown in each hand, should procure her a male of her own kind, and then the kingdom should remain for the like number of years to her posterity. Now, says he, the time will expire very soon, and as no one has been, or it is believed will ever come, with two such crowns, the Princess Stygi, though she undoubtedly will try for it, has little hopes of succeeding her father, for her cousin Felbamco pretends, as no woman ever reigned with us, he is the right heir, and will have the kingdom. Pray, says I, 
What do you mean by an inhabitant of the air? Oh, says he, she flies. And do most of your country folks fly, says I, for I perceive you don't. No, says he, no one but the princess Stygie. How comes that about, says I? Her mother, when she was with child with her, says he, being one day in a wood near the palace, and having straggled from her company, was attacked by a man with a grundee, who, not knowing her, clasped her within his grundee, and would have debauched her, but perceiving her cries had brought some of her servants to her assistance, he quitted her and went off. This accident threw her into such a fright that it was a long time before she recovered, and then was delivered of a daughter with a grundee. My friend, says I, your meeting with me will be a very happy affair for your kingdom. I am the man the princess expects. Go back to the princess and let her and her father know I will be with them in six days, and establish his dominions in the princess." The fellow looked at me, thinking I joked, but never offered to stir a foot. Why don't you go, says I, and for the good news you bear to the princess, I see you shall be made one of the greatest men in Norbon. The man smiled still, but could not conceive I was in earnest. I asked him then how long he should be in going to the palace. He said, three days at soonest. Deliver but your message right, says I, and I'll assure you it shall be the better for you. The man, seeing me look serious, did at length believe me, and promised he would obey me punctually, but he had not seen how I came to the place he met me at, for I had ordered my bearers into the wood with my chair before I showed myself. He arrived, as I afterwards found, at the palace the fourth morning very early, and passing the guard in a great heat with much ado was introduced to the king and discharged himself of my message. His majesty, giving no credit to him, thought he had been mad, but he affirmed it to be true, and telling the king at what a distance I had knocked down his companion and made a great hole in his back, only holding up a thing I had in my hand, which made a great noise, Anoweski ordered his daughter to come before him, who, having herself heard the man's report, and being very willing to believe it, with the king's leave, desired that the messenger might be detained till the appointed day, and taken care of, and that the preparation should be made for the reception of the stranger, in case it should be true." The noise of my coming and my errand excited everyone's curiosity to see me arrive, and the day being come, I hovered over the city a considerable time to be sure of grounding right. The king and his daughter, on the rumor of my appearing, came forth to view me and receive me at my alighting. The people were collected into a large square on one side of the palace, and standing in several clusters at different places. I judged where the king might seem most likely to be, and ordered my bearers to alight there. But I happened upon the most unlucky post, as it might have proved, and at the same time the most lucky I could have found there. 
for I had scarce raised myself from my chair, but fell Bamco pushing up to me through the throng and lifting up a large club he had in his hand, had certainly dispatched me if I had not at the instant drawn a pistol from my girdle and shot him dead upon the spot, insomuch that the club, which was then over my head, fell gently down on my shoulder. I did not then know who it was I had killed, but for fear of a fresh attempt I drew out another pistol and my cutlass, and inquiring at which part of the square the king was, I walked directly up to him, he not as yet knowing what had happened. His majesty and his daughter met me, and welcomed me into his dominions. I fell at the king's feet, telling him I brought a message which I hoped would excuse my entering his majesty's dominions without the formality of obtaining his leave. When we came to the palace, the king ordered some refreshments to be given me and my servants, and then that I should be conducted to the room of audience. The report of Felbamco's death had reached the palace before us, and that it was by my hand this greatly surprised the whole court, but proved agreeable news to Stygie. At my entrance into the room of audience the king was sitting at the farther end of it against the wall, with his daughter on his right hand, and a seat was placed for me at his left, but nearer to the middle of the room sideways, on which I was ordered to sit down. There were abundance of courtiers present, and above me was a seat ordered for one of them, who I found afterwards was one of the religious. His Majesty asked me aloud how it happened that the first moment of my entering his dominions I should dip my hands in blood, and that, too, of one of his nearest relations. I then got up to make my answer, but His Majesty ordered me to my seat again, I told him that as it was most certain I knew no person in his kingdom, so it could not be supposed I could have an ill design against anyone, especially against that royal blood, into whose hands I then came to render myself. But the truth was that what I had done was in preservation of my own life, for that person slain had rushed through the crowd upon me with a great club, intending to murder me, and that whilst the blow was over my head I killed him in such position that by his fall the club rested on my shoulder, but was then too weak to hurt me. The king, asking if that was the real case, several from the lower end of the room said they were informed it was, and one in particular said he saw the transaction, and I had declared it faithfully. Then, says the king, you are acquitted, and now, what brings you hither? Relate your business. Great, sir, says I, it is my peculiar happiness to be appointed by providence as the proposer of a marriage for the princess Stygie, your daughter, with a potent neighboring monarch, having already been enabled to perform things past belief for his honor. Know then, great sir, I am a native of the north, and through infinite perils and hardships at last arrived in the dominions of Georgetti, where I have given peace to his state by the death of the usurper Harlequin. I have also just conquered the kingdom of Mount Alco for my master, and am here come to make your daughter an offer of both crowns, and also of all that is my master's, with 
his person in marriage. The old priest then rose and said, May it please your majesty, we are almost right. But what has always staggered me is how the person should come, for the messenger to us on this errand is to come from above. Now this person has not the grandee, and therefore could not come from thence. For, as the rest, I understand, the prince from whom he brings this offer to your daughter has the grandee, and so is a male of her own kind, and I understand the two kingdoms in his possession to be the two crowns in the messenger's hands. But, I say, what I stick at is his coming from above. What, says Stige, did you not see him come? No, says he. Oh, says she, he came in the air, and was a long time over the city before he descended. That's impossible, says the old priest, for he is smooth like us. Indeed, sir, says she, I saw him, and so did most of the court, the king and nobles then attesting this truth. Sir, says the priest to the king, it is completed, and your majesty must do the rest. I little expected, says the king, to see this day. And now, daughter, as this message was designed for you, you only can answer it. But still, I must say, it surpasses my comprehension that in the decree of providence it should be so ordered that the very hand which brings the accomplishment of what has been so long since foretold us should without design, have first destroyed all that could have rendered the marriage state uncomfortable to you. Stige then declared she submitted to fate and her father's will. I stayed here a week to view the country and the sea, which I heard was not far off. Here were many useful beasts for food and burden, fowls also in plenty, and fish near the sea-coasts, and the people eat flesh, so that I thought myself amongst mankind again. I made all the remarks the shortness of time would allow, and then, taking my leave, departed. I returned to the colony, where I heard that the little landers had been on the coast, but I not being there, or any lading ready, they were gone away again. However, they had detained two of them. I was pleased with that, but sorry they were returned empty. I examined the prisoners, and by giving them liberty and good usage, they settled amongst us, and the next fleet that came, the sailors to a man, were all my own the moment they could get to shore. This, though I thought it would have spoiled our trade at first, brought the islanders and me to the following compromise, and upon this occasion. Their ships, having laid on our coasts one whole season for want of hands to carry them back, I came to an agreement with their commanders, for they were all willing to return, that such a number of them should be left as hostages with me till the return of a number of my own men, which I should lend them to navigate their ships home. And I sent word to the Zaps that, as it might be beneficial to us both to keep the trade still on foot, to prevent the like inconveniences for the future, I would buy their shipping, paying them in metals, and agree to furnish them yearly with such a quantity of my goods at a stated price, and would send them by my own people. 
which they approving, the trade went on in a very agreeable and profitable manner, and we in time built several new vessels of our own, and employed abundance of hands in the trade, and had plenty of handy craftsmen of different occupations, each of whom I obliged to keep three natives under him, to be trained up in his business. End of chapter 22